The last few days have reminded me one of the good things about academic life. We've had criticism, creativity, and collegiality, and for that I want to thank the Templeton Foundation and Jan for making all of this possible. One of the things that has struck me the most is there's just been too much learning going on the last few days. And so perhaps today will be, or this morning or this next hour, will be a little less learning for all of you. What I'm going to talk about, well, as you know, there are, there are basically four main families of arguments that middle way philosophers in India following Kamala Shila used to establish that objects do not have an intrinsic nature. This is the famous five arguments minus one, because right? in India that one of them isn't really present. And the neither one nor many family of arguments is among them. And Kamala Shila's own version is one member of this family. And that's the argument that I want to talk about. So it's Kamala Sheila's neither one nor many argument. So just for the ignorant, uh, are, what are the others? The, the other ones are the, uh, it's called, let's see, I mean, you want to know what they all are? There's the so-called diamond cutter argument. There's the dependent origination argument. There is the uh, four corners argument. There is the existent, non-existent argument. Those are all considered to be hetus for the same uh, target, which is the intrinsic, or the absence of intrinsic nature. Mo many of those arguments are based on causation, and this one isn't quite based on causation. So the structure is going to be as follows. Uh, the basic idea is to ask us to think about what we have to believe in order for Kamala Sheila's argument to work. Right? So I want to suggest that you have to have specific views on the nature of atoms, consciousness and its contents, and causation. So the idea is that these, these views that we have to believe in order for the argument to work, Kamala Sheila himself doesn't justify. So I want to suggest that friends of the middle way might want to turn, perhaps surprisingly, to contemporary metaphysics for the necessary resources, some of which I'll point to in what follows. So what I hope to discuss then is first, whether Kamala Sheila's what I hope we can talk about in the discussion, is first, whether Kamala Sheila's argument actually depends on what I say it does, Second, talk about what you think the best argument is that one can give in support of each of Kamala Sheila's suppressed views. And three, what you think the best contemporary resource that we can draw upon to do this might be. The reason why I think this exercise may be important is that friends of Kamala Sheila's argument should know what kind of a friend they have, since this should enable them to deepen their friendship or recognize that Kamala Sheila's argument is only a fair weather friend and that it's time to move on. So I'll just give two ways of stating the argument. Um, so one, objects which are neither one nor many intrinsically are ultimately not objects intrinsically, like a reflection or an illusion. The objects proposed by our friends and opponents are neither one nor many intrinsically. Another version. Objects which do not have either a single or multiple intrinsic nature do not ultimately have an intrinsic nature. The objects proposed by our friends and enemies do not have either a single or multiple intrinsic nature. Okay. So the first thing just to note is that the argument, as Kamala Sheila states it, is iterative, in that Kamala Sheila needs to show one by one that none of the candidate objects proposed by his friends and opponents are either one or many intrinsically, right, with the greatest attention devoted to showing that all of these objects must have parts. Is that right? So he doesn't take the object of inference to be all, all objects 
takes it to be, well, he takes it to be all objects, but only by showing that each and every particular object proposed by his friends or opponent actually cannot be one or cannot be many. And most of the attention is devoted to showing that it cannot be one, which means showing that it does not have parts. This is all, it should all be, this is all pretty fairly familiar. Um, it might be worth saying a little bit about what objects are, right? So let's first just think of conventional objects, and let's talk in particular about the objects with which we think. So for example, we talk about reasons, or targets, or sites of an inference, right? Hetu, sadhyas, or pakshas. We're thinking about something. Those are objects. But conventional objects in general, just like tables and chairs are objects, so conventional objects are of two sorts. It's called one pseudo-objects and one conventionally real object. So what makes a conventional object a pseudo-object is that it cannot be established as being an object by a source of knowledge. Conventional objects are not pseudo-objects. Conventional objects that are not pseudo-objects are conventionally real, which is to say that they are known to be such via a source of knowledge, and they bear the three characteristics of such objects. Those characteristics are they exist dependently, they're plausible without analysis. We heard this term earlier. It's of, in Kamala Sheila's phrase, it's avichara ramaniya. And they're capable of pragmatic efficacy. So what makes an object conventionally real? It has to possess three characteristics, be dependently arisen, be plausible without analysis, and be capable of being of pragmatic efficacy. And it should be knowable via a source of knowledge. So these conventionally real objects, about such, about, this is all from uh, Kamala Sheila. So conventionally real objects, about such objects, we can make either correct or indirect predications generally, right? Incorrect predications include any predication that is taken to be ultimately the case, along with predications that can be shown to be mispredications via source of knowledge. So correct predications are correct relative to a source of knowledge, the basic point, which is what makes them conventional, conventionally real. So the content of a conventional predication can be an ultimate claim, or so it seems. Is that all right? So the way you show that a, a predication is correct is through a source of knowledge. One kind of mispredication is if you predicate something ultimately. However, you can conventionally predicate, you can conventionally make an ultimate claim. Right. So what, I'm gonna do, what I want to do is just go through some of the objects that Kamala Sheila says are neither one nor many, and look at what he assumes to be the case in order for his argument to work. And then talk about uh, whether what he assumes is reasonable for us to think or not, and what kinds of resources, contemporary resources, we might have to pursue them, since Kamala Sheila himself doesn't go into much detail. In fact, he doesn't go into any detail on some of them. So the first, the first candidate objects are atoms. And the problem, of course, is extension. All this is familiar to everybody. So the first thing he considers is atomic symbols. And he includes there the, the kinds of atoms accepted or proposed by a range of characters, by Vaisheshikas, by Vaibhashikas, Shivagupta in particular, and Sautrantikas. And the point is, first, that these atoms do not have spatial extension. He says, since atoms don't have proper parts, neither homogeneous nor heterogeneous groups of atomic symbols can aggregate. Right? And he says, therefore, extension can't be accounted for by the aggregation of atomic symbols. That's, that's all familiar. Mm -hmm. 
um, this is also familiar, that the collection of, of, so collections of homogeneous and heterogeneous atomic symbols, he says, cannot function as extended objects. They can't aggregate, but they can't function as extended objects when collected together. And he says this since, his argument is that since collections are not metaphysically real, singular objects. Yes. Does he distinguish between collections and aggregations, Dupad Sakpa? The Sanchitta and Sanghata. I mean, the, usually collection and aggregate. Yeah. So it doesn't seem as though here he makes use of that distinction. Yeah. Um, so in order for this kind of thinking to work, what has to be the case is, is the question. And the first thing it seems to me has to be the case is there can't be any extended symbols. Right? There can't be an object with no proper parts that necessarily occupies a region of non-zero space, of non-zero size. Okay? I take it this is intuitive that people don't think there are extended symbols. The question is whether looking at contemporary arguments for the possibility of extended symbols can help us appreciate something more about the Madhyamaka argument or not. And what I'm going to do is simply raise these issues and maybe just talk about a few contemporary, not talk about a few contemporary views or arguments in any detail, just mention them as a way of getting a discussion going. So first, what I want us to think about is whether in fact Kamalachilo's argument depends on no extended symbols and whether in fact what kinds of arguments we ought to have for thinking there are no such things and whether you're happy with that, basically. I mean, just some, there's lots of views about extended symbols. I think I count at least eight, but there must be more. And I don't understand many of them very well at all. I know many of you do bore. But just to give people who haven't, ex haven't thought about this much some ideas, there's a view called the pointy view, which says that necessarily x is a simple if and only if it is a point-sized object. There's something called the metaphysically indivisible view, which says that necessarily x is a simple if and only if uh, x he, they're talking about material objects here. X is a material object, and that it's not metaphysically possible to divide X without first changing X's intrinsic properties. There's something called the brutal view, which says there's no correct, finitely statable, and non-circular answer to the question, X is a material symbol if and only if blank. On this view, simplicity simply has no non-mereological substantive criterion. What's interesting about this view is that some people argue that the truth of the brutal view leaves open the possibility of extended symbols. And it's the conceivability of such symbols that's supposed to secure their possibility. All right. Do you believe in extended symbols or not? That's point one. If there are no extended symbols, what does that say about what there is? Does it suggest that all objects are gunky, right? in the sense that each and every one of their proper parts has proper parts. It seems that Kamalashilo is committed to the view that if there are no symbols, but there are objects, then these objects have to be pieces of gunk. Right? So if you're a friend of Kamalashila, you have to believe in no extended symbols. And it seems like if you're a friend of Kamalashila, you have to believe in gunk. And the question is, what kinds of arguments might there be for this? And is that possible? Uh, unless the symbols are tropes. Unless, symbol, unless symbols are tropes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not, I mean, I, I understand it. A lot of the 
for us around this time did take the simple speech routes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, that seems right. So the question about, so you mean specifically with respect to symbols or with respect to gunky objects? Well, if, if they're tropes, they're not spatially extended, right? Yeah. Um, so that they're atoms which, are not, which have no spatial extension. Right. Aren't we talking about <laughs> temporal extension? Yeah. Or temporal extension. Yeah. So how are you... Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Sorry, what was I, I was not clear about something. Someone make it clear. Well, the, the, uh, I was assuming the parts meant spatial parts, but the suggestion is that they had tropes can have temporal parts. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. another way in which they, they might be non-simple, though, which is that they're actually they come in bundles. Yeah, they could. They come in pairs or triples or whatever. Or they're composed of elements. Yeah. Yep. And well, there are got all the great elements in each dharma. No right. Yep. Yeah. Let's keep going. We'll get to we'll, we'll get to the tropes later. But this is exactly the kind of stuff I think we should talk about. So the first idea was atoms. Atoms aren't one. Also, obviously, holes as singular objects without proper parts aren't one either. And go something like this. Um, nothing with proper parts is truly one or singular, right? A singular object, a whole, says cannot be present in, pervade, touch its various parts, and still be one or singular. Right? Uh, and the second is that he says, nothing about which contradictory properties can be truly predicated as one or singular. Right? So what does this commit one to? It commit one to the view that there are no holes of singular objects with proper parts. This may not be very hard. It also commits one to the view that there are no heterogeneous symbols. Right? There's no extended symbols that have qualitative heterogeneity across its spatial or temporal axis, given that it lacks both spatial and temporal parts. Um, and there are, of course, a variety of strategies for showing that spatially extended symbols can, have qualitative, can be qualitatively diverse. You could take the view that there are distributional properties as somehow being metaphysically fundamental, which means something like you know, being polka-dotted or being hot at one end and cold at one end is metaphysically fundamental. And then to be qualitatively heterogeneous would then be to somehow exemplify this non-uniform distributional property. And this is relevant in the Indian context because chitra-rupa is basically this. The idea that a butterfly wing is, is a, has a variegated color is really this kind of distributional property. And there's lots of resources within the Indian material itself, not in Buddhist material, to try to argue in defense of this property. So you could take the root of distributional properties to try to account for heterogeneous symbols. You could also take a trope theoretic view and say that um, for an extended symbol, to be sort of half gray and half white, it has to exemplify a grayness trope at one, suppose it only has two tropes, a grayness trope at one region and a whiteness trope at the other region. And there's, there's a guy named Doug Ehring who's tried to develop a trope theoretic account of, of heterogeneous symbols. Third thing that, so the second view that Kamala Shiloh is committed to in addition is, is two parts. There's the no holes view and there's the no heterogeneous symbols view. But there are people offering arguments for heterogeneous symbols. And since he doesn't defend the view, the idea is, will looking there be of interest or help? Third is consciousness. So we were talking about atoms, and we're talking about holes. We're talking, we could talk about material objects there if we wanted. At least in his case, he's talking primarily about material objects or something like material objects. He also raised the same argument about consciousness. And the point is, of course, that consciousness can't be one or singular either. 
And the argument goes something like this. He says, the contents of consciousness are not singular in, that they appear to a, uh, in how they appear to us in a single instant of cognition or over time. Right? So the objects, the contents of cognition are not singular in how they appear to us in a single instant of cognition or over time. Then, since cognized content is not singular in its appearance, cognition cannot be singular. Right. So there seems to be the idea that contents and its cognition, I mean, consciousness and its contents must, must match, at least in some relevant sense, right? So what we think about appears to have spatial or temporal extension. So consciousness must have such extension, therefore parts, and therefore cannot be one. So Kamala Sheila is assuming some kind of a model for mental content, right, for what content is like. We could imagine, let's just imagine two for now. We could imagine that the content of content is like a bucket, I mean like a ball, and consciousness is like a bucket. So you have buckets and balls. And the, the idea is that the ball in the bucket cannot be a heterogeneous symbol, one way of thinking about it. Or that the, uh, let's do, the idea is they can't be one, so how are you going to do that? If you have a bucket and ball mo model, you have to do two things. You have to somehow say they can't be one. The other idea is to think of content as a newspaper. Right? It might be easier to think of it as being one. Then the question is, with a newspaper, is what do you do with this? Uh, let's leave, let, sorry, let me just take a step back. I got ahead of myself. The idea there's a matching condition, there's some kind of a matching between consciousness and its contents and that somehow the nature of the contents is revealing about something about consciousness, right? So that is, if the content appears to have spatial or temporal extension, that somehow requires that consciousness also have such extension, or at least that it have parts. It's a weird view with that example, but that's, that's sort of where it goes. So there is a certain... Jay? You don't need it to be quite like that, though. Okay. Right? No, it doesn't need to be like that, no. No. Right. Right. I mean, the, the use of temporal and, and spatial extension is yeah. is particularly weird, yeah. and which is why I used it. But I mean, the idea simply is just like any kind of I hate to say this word picture <laughs> in your mind, but the, he uses it. If you have a picture, and the picture there's an arm and there's a leg. He says, well, that means that consciousness has parts, the part that's aware of the arm and the part that's aware of the leg. So this suggests there's a certain kind of model of consciousness, and as we know, are the contents of consciousness, and there are many such models. The bucket and ball was meant to be one, and the newspaper might be a friendlier one. We can know we can have a newspaper article about an elephant. It doesn't mean that the properties of what the article is about talk about, I mean, in any way impinge upon the nature of what it is that we, are, we understand. But Kamalchi doesn't provide such a model directly, so the issue is, what is it? So that's just about consciousness. The other thing he says, and this is where I got ahead of myself, is that he says that consciousness cannot be singular because contentless consciousness is impossible. Is that okay? So there's, there's two things he considers. Whether consciousness is singular, he says no, based on what we are aware of. And the second is that consciousness itself, you couldn't say, is singular because there's no contentless consciousness for him. The third 
part about consciousness is that he says consciousness can't be both one and many. Why? Since the contents of consciousness can't be both one and many. That means that you can't be conscious of a heterogeneous symbol. And this is really important in the Indian context because, as you know, the Chitradvaita view, the view that consciousness is about a singular, multifaceted object, that means a heterogeneous symbol, is one of the things that the successors in this tradition defended fiercely. So the point is that it's also committed to the view that heterogeneous symbols can't be the contents of consciousness. So Kamalashila's consciousness arguments do a couple things. It's presupposed there must be some kind of a matching that allows for something about the what we the contents of it to tell us something about the nature of consciousness. There has, there has to be the possibility of contentless consciousness is the second, and the third is that you can't be conscious or have cognition of a heterogeneous symbol. The fourth is, and the last, is causation. So, as we've talked about, Kamala Sheila says that uh, causation can't be accounted for by a single thing, right? Everyone knows how this goes. A single object that doesn't change cannot be a cause since it cannot produce anything and still be one. The idea here also is he's committed to the view that there are no causal complexes and committed to the view there can't be cooperating causes. And the question is, there's no arguments to defend it? You need to look for arguments. And the third, the last point on the causation is just the metaphysics of causation, right? There's just no, we talked about this before, there's no such things as real relations, causal or otherwise. He says causal relations are conventional, and he specifically says that they're conventional because the objects are conventional. There's no real relations. So, conclusion. And there's a um, question. Is it too hard for a friend of the middle way to be a friend of Kamala Sheila's neither one nor many argument? Especially since it has such a metaphysically high, it's a metaphysically high maintenance friendship. Sort of where I go. My question. If you're a friend of the middle way, can you be a friend of Kamala Sheila's argument? Because it seems to have a very high metaphysical price tag in order for it to work, or not. I've tried to articulate that metaphysical price tag or explain it in terms of the views that Kamala Sheila is committed to, and have suggested that maybe one thing to do is, if in fact that's the case, look at contemporary metaphysics and see if you're willing to, if you can find arguments that you think support that, and if so, whether you're willing to accept it, and if you accept it, whether you can still be a friend of the middle way. That's where we go.